Hello, my name is Peter Jardim-White, and I'm a drama teacher here at Wellingborough School. For many people, the school play is a cornerstone of their most rich and vivid childhood memories. Whether or not a relationship with the performing arts continues into adulthood, it's hard to forget the butterflies, the shaky knees, the thrill of performing for friends, family and teachers. What you're about to hear is a very different kind of school play. An audio play, the first in a series of six, created by our Key Stage 3 Drama Club. Though they aren't about to step out onto wooden boards under brilliant hot lights, I know these students will be feeling the same anticipation, knowing that their art is about to meet its audience. Under the guidance of myself and my colleagues Rebecca Lamberton and Hanali Mystery, this fantastic cast of voice actors and Foley artists have created something which I think is truly magical. I hope you enjoy it. Wellingburian Gothic, a series of chilling audio plays for the festive season, presented by Wellingborough School's Key Stage 3 Drama Club. We are thrilled that you have returned to have your blood curdled once more. You are about to hear a performance of The Shadow, adapted from the short story by E. Nesbitt, which was first published in 1905. Now, double check you've locked your door and settle down to hear the bizarre and unsettling tale of Miss Eastwich. This is not an artistically rounded off ghost story, and nothing is explained in it, and there seems to be no reason why any of it should have happened, but that is no reason why it should not be told. You must have noticed that all the real ghost stories you have ever come close to are like this in these respects. No explanation, no logical coherence. Here is the story. It had been one of those jolly, old-fashioned dances where nearly everyone stays the night and the big country house is stretched to its utmost containing. Guests hovering on sofas, couches, settles and even mattresses on the floor. I believe some of the young men actually slept on the great dining table. There were three of us, Jane, Lily and I, but Lily had fainted suddenly at the second extra of the Christmas dance and had been put to bed in the dressing room next to the room where Jane and I stayed. We had talked of our dance partners, as girls will, and then the stillness of the manor house, broken only by the whisper of the wind in the cedar branches, had given us such luxurious confidence in our surroundings of bright chintz and candle flame and firelight that we had dared to talk of ghosts. Neither of us believed in ghosts, but my heart, at least, seemed to leap to my throat and choke me when there was a tap at the door. A faint tap, not to be mistaken. Jane called out, Who's there? And the door opened slowly, and Miss Eastwich, my aunt's housekeeper, companion, and general standby, looked in on us. Miss Eastwich, you startled us. Come in. But Miss Eastwich simply stood there. She was, at all normal hours, the most silent woman I have ever known. As she gazed down at us, 
She shivered a little, and so did we, for in those days corridors were not worn by hot water pipes, and the air from the door was keen. I saw your light, and I thought it was late for you to be up after all this gaiety, I thought perhaps. She glanced towards the door of the dressing room in which Lily was sleeping. Don't worry, Miss Eastwich, Lily's fast asleep. I should have added a good night, but before I could, Jane had jumped up from the hearth rug and run to the door and put an arm around Miss Eastwich's long, prim neck. She did not know Miss Eastwich as I did, did not know how her persistent silence had built a wall around her, a wall that no one dared to break down with the commonplaces of talk or the littlenesses of mere human relationship. Miss Eastwich's silence had taught us to treat her as a machine, and as other than a machine, we never dream of treating her. Come in, come in and get warm. There's lots of cocoa left. Jane drew Miss Eastwich in and shut the door. The vivid light of pleasure in the housekeeper's pale eyes went through my heart like a knife. It would have been so easy to put an arm around her neck if one had only thought she wanted an arm there. But it was not I who had thought that, and indeed my arm might have not brought the light evoked by Jane's delicate arm. Now, you shall have the very biggest, nicest chair, and the cocoa pots here on the hob as hot as hot, and we've all been telling ghost stories, only we don't believe in them a bit. And when you get warm, you ought to tell one too. You, you're sure I'm not in your way? Not a bit. Miss Eastwich, I'd have asked you to come in other times, only I didn't think you'd care for girls' chatter. <laughs> this is very pleasant. As she smiled, it seemed to me that I had never before heard her real voice. It did not please me to think that at a cost of cocoa, a fire and my arm around her neck, I might have heard this new voice any time these six years. We've been telling ghost stories. The worst of it is, we don't believe in ghosts. No one we know has ever seen one. It's always what somebody told somebody who told somebody you know, and you can't believe that, can you? And all the ghost stories are so beautifully rounded off. A murder committed on the spot, or a hidden treasure, or a warning. I think that makes them harder to believe. The most horrid ghost story I ever heard was one that was quite silly. Tell it! I, I can't. It doesn't sound like anything to tell. Miss Eastwich ought to tell one. Oh, do! The only thing that I ever knew of was his say till just the end. Don't tell it if you'd rather not. But I knew she would tell her story. And I knew she had never before told it. And I knew she was only telling it now because she was proud. And this seemed the only way to pay for the fire and the cocoa and the laying of that arm around her neck. I dare say it would bore you. We should just love it! Do tell us! Never mind if it isn't a real, proper, fixed-up story. I'm certain anything you think ghostly would be quite too beautifully horrid for anything. Miss Eastwich finished her cocoa and reached up to set the cup on the mantelpiece. It can't do any harm. They don't believe in ghosts and it wasn't exactly a ghost either and they're not babies. It's hardly worth telling. Go on. Oh, please do. Well, 20 years ago and more than that, I, I had two friends and I love them more than anything in the world. And they married each other. She paused, and I knew just in what way she had loved each of them. How awfully nice of you. Do go on. Well, after they were married, I did not see much of them for a year or two. And then he wrote and asked me to come and stay because his wife was ill. And I should cheer her up and cheer him up as well. For it was a gloomy house and he himself was growing gloomy too. Well, I went. He said the house was gloomy. And I imagined my cab going through dark, winding shrubbery and drawing up in front of one of these sedate old houses. But instead, we drew up in front of a large, smart villa with iron railings, 
gay encaustic tiles leading from the iron gate to the stained glass panel door, and for shrubbery, only a few stunted cypresses in the tiny front garden. It was all warm and welcoming. She was gazing into the fire now, and I knew she had forgotten us. He met me at the door. Thanks ever so for coming. I know this is difficult. I hope you can forgive the past. What past? Hush, just let her tell it. Oh, I I suppose he meant because they hadn't invited me before or something, but it's a, a very dull story I find after all, and... Do go on, please, Miss Eastwich. All right. They were very glad to see me, and I was very glad to be there. You girls now have such troops of friends, but these two were all I had, all I ever had. Mabel wasn't exactly ill, only weak and excitable. I thought he seemed more ill than she did. She went to bed early, and before she went, she asked me to keep him company through his last pipe. So we went into the dining room and sat in two armchairs on each side of the fireplace. He poured out some whiskey for himself, but he hardly touched it. He sat looking into the fire. At last, I said, What's wrong? Mabel looks as well as you could expect. Yes, but... I don't know from one day to another that she won't begin to notice something's wrong. That's why I wanted you to come. You were always so sensible and strong-minded. And Mabel's like a bird on a flower. Yes, uh, of course. Margaret, this is a very peculiar house. I think it's very pretty, fresh and home-like. A little too new, perhaps, but that fault will mend with time. It is new. That's just it. We're the first people who've ever lived in it. If it were an old house, Margaret, I should think it was haunted. Have you seen something? No, not yet. Heard, then? No, not heard either. But there's a sort of feeling. I can't describe it. I've seen nothing, and I've heard nothing. But I've been so near to seeing and hearing. And something follows me about. Only when I turn around, there's never anything. Only my shadow. And I always feel I shall see the thing next minute. But I never do. Not quite. It's always just not visible. It's just nerves. You have been working rather hard after all. Do you think anyone I could have wronged could have laid a curse on me? I don't believe in curses. And the only person anyone could say you have wronged forgives you freely if there was anything to forgive. You ought to take Mabel away from the house and have a complete change. No, Mabel's got everything in order and I could never manage to get away now without explaining everything. And above all, she mustn't guess there's anything wrong. I dare say I shan't feel quite such a lunatic now that you're here. So, we said goodnight. Is that the whole story? No, that's only the beginning. Whenever I was alone with Harold, he used to tell me the same thing over and over again. And at first, when I began to notice things, I tried to think that it was his talk that had upset my nerves. The odd thing was that it wasn't only at night, but in broad daylight, and particularly on the stairs and passages. On the staircase, the feeling used to be so awful that I had to bite my lips till they bled to keep myself from running up the stairs at full speed. Only I knew if I did, I should go mad at the top. There was always something behind me, exactly as he had said, something that one could just not see, and a sound that one could just not hear. There was a long corridor at the top of the house. I would sometimes almost see something. You know how one sees things without looking, but if I turned around, it seemed as if the thing drooped and melted into my shadow. 
Downstairs there was another corridor, something like it, with a cupboard at one end and a kitchen at the other. One night I went down into the kitchen to heat some milk for Mabel. As I stood by the fire, waiting for the milk to boil, I glanced through the open door and along the passage. The cupboard door was partly opened, and as I looked, I knew that now it was not going to be almost anymore. The thing was grey at first, and then it was black. It seemed to sink down till it lay like a pool of ink on the floor, and then its edges drew in. It seemed to flow, like ink when you tilt up the paper you've spilt it on, and it flowed into the cupboard till it was all gathered into the shadow there. I screamed aloud, but even then, I'm thankful to say, I had enough sense to upset the boiling milk, so that when he came downstairs three steps at a time, I had the excuse for my scream of a scalded hand. The explanation satisfied Mabel, but not him. Why didn't you tell me? It was that cupboard. All the horror of the house comes out of that. Tell me, have you seen anything yet? Or is it only the nearly seeing and the nearly hearing still? After that, I hated to be alone with the shadow because at any moment I might see something that would crouch and sink and lie like a black pool and then slowly draw itself into the shadow that was nearest. Often, that shadow was my own. The thing came first at night, but afterwards there was no hour safe from it. I saw it at dawn and at noon, in the dusk and in the firelight, and always it crouched and sank and was a pool that flowed into some shadow and became part of it. And always I saw it with a straining of the eyes, a pricking and aching. It seemed as though I could only just see it, as if to see it my sight had to be strained to the uttermost. And still the sound was in the house, the sound that I could just not hear. At last, early one morning, I did hear it close behind me. It was worse than the thing that crept into the shadows. I don't know how I bore it. I couldn't have borne it if I hadn't been so fond of them both. But I knew in my heart that if he had no one to whom he could speak openly, he would go mad or tell Mabel. So I stayed on and bore it. And we were very cheerful and made little jokes and tried to be amusing when Mabel was with us. But when we were alone, we did not try to be amusing. And sometimes a day or two would go by without us seeing or hearing anything. And we should perhaps have fancied that we had imagined what we had seen and heard. Only there was always the feeling of there being something about the house that one could just not hear and just not see. And the weeks went by, and Mabel's baby was born. The nurse and doctor said that both mother and child were doing well. Harold and I sat late in the dining room that night. We had neither of us seen or heard anything for three days. Our anxiety about Mabel had lessened. We talked of the future. It seemed so much brighter than the past. Then I went upstairs, almost for the first time without the feeling of something following me. I listened at Mabel's door. Everything was quiet. I went on towards my own room, and in an instant, I felt there was something behind me. I turned. It was crouching there. It sank, and the black fluidness of it seemed to be sucked under the door of Mabel's room. I went back. I opened the door a listening inch. All was still. And then... I opened the door and went in. Mabel was asleep with the baby, also sleeping, cuddled up in one of her arms with its tiny head against the side. 
I prayed then that Mabel might never know the terrors that her husband and I had known, that her little ears might never hear any but pretty sounds, her clear eyes never see any but pretty sights. I did not dare to pray for a long time after that, because my prayer was answered. She never saw, never heard anything more in this world, and now I could do nothing more for him or for her. I stood beside my friend at his wife's funeral, and we both saw it. Between us and the coffin, first grey, thin black, it crouched for an instant, then sank and liquefied and gathered together, and drawn till it ran to the nearest shadow. And the nearest shadow was the shadow of Mabel's coffin. I left the next day. His mother came. She had never liked me. Didn't you see him again? Only once, and something black crouched then between him and me, but it was only his second wife crying beside his coffin. It's not a cheerful story, is it? It doesn't lead anywhere. I've never told anyone else. I think it was seeing his daughter that brought it all back. For the second time that night, Miss Heatstrich turned her gaze to the door, which connected the room we were sitting in to the dressing room where Lily slept. You don't mean... Lily. Lily is Mabel's baby. Yes, and exactly like Mabel, only with his eyes. Suddenly, Miss Eastwich leapt from her seat and stood at her gaunt height, her hands clenched, eyes straining. She was looking at something that we could not see, and I know what the man in the Bible meant when he said, the hair of my flesh stood up. What she saw seemed not quite to reach the height of the dressing room door handle. Her eyes followed it down, down, widening and widening. Mine followed them. All the nerves of them seemed strained to the uttermost. And I almost saw, or did I quite see? I can't be certain. But we all heard it. The doctor who came in the morning said that Mabel's daughter had died of heart disease, which she had inherited from her mother. It was that that had made her faint during the second extra. But I have sometimes wondered whether she may not have inherited something from her father. I had never been able to forget the look on her dead face. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wellingburian Gothic. Our version of The Shadow was adapted from the short story by E. Nesbitt. The role of narrator was played by Molly. Jane was played by Freya. Miss Eastwich was played by Poppy. And Harold was played by Jeff. Additional sound effects were created by Izzy, Olivia and Eve. Our theme music was composed and produced by Tommy. And our artwork was created by Key Stage 3 art students. This episode of Wellingburian Gothic was directed and produced by Mr White, Mrs Lamberton and Miss Mystery, with assistance from Max. And I, of course, am your host, Georgina. Join us next week for another chilling Yuletide tale, if you think you have the heart to take it.